Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. Roberto, I'm so, so glad uh, to have you here with me from Milano, Italy. Ciao, Esne. And uh, you're so welcome to my podcast. And I'm uh, really also so happy to meet you here in my home city of Stockholm, where you are spending some of uh, your time nowadays, yeah. which is a big change. And we're going to talk about innovation and uh, real leadership. Uh, so it was like two, more or less two and a half years ago that we were at your university in Milan, Politecnico di Milano, and did a podcast uh, episode together. It was really one of the most listened to episodes on Corporate Unplugged. And there was a lot of people who gave feedback and a big interest. So I definitely think that the, these subjects that you've been diving into on a deep level for the last couple of decades is really more needed and interesting than, than ever. So now it's time to share, I think, more of your also recent insights and uh, where you are with your work now. And for those of you who might have missed the first episode with Roberto, of course, listen to it. But here's a very short intro of... Uh, everything that Roberto is involved in. Uh, Roberto Verganti is a professor of leadership and innovation at the Stockholm School of Economics, where he is founding the Garden Center for Design and Leadership. And he's also professor at the School of Management of Politecnico di Milano and has been a visiting scholar at the Harvard Business School. Uh, he also serves on the advisory board of the European Innovation Council of the European Commission. Roberto is the author of Overcrowded, Designing Meaningful Products in a World Awash with Ideas, published in 2017 by MIT Press, and also the book Design-Driven Innovation, published by Harvard Business Press in 2009. So, Roberto, I wanted to um, kick off just with a reflection uh, I've had uh, lately. I think more and more people uh, really search for new directions, especially so in, in this business world. And uh, because I think generally we need and want to be part of new ways and, and solutions, but also, I guess, it has to do with some deeply rooted uh, human need we have for meaning. What's your observation? The search for meaning is really rooted in, in our human nature. It's um, it what makes us human. The challenge we have now is that uh, finding meaning is one of the most complicated thing ever because of this variety of options that we have in front of us. And what we discovered in the last two, three years, so this is something that, that happened uh, after we talked, then in reality the search for meaning is a very curious thing, uh, you, you, which is very contemporary in this, this crazy world. Even if you believe you're saying, uh, this is meaningful for me and I, and I will go there. In reality, sense-making is always an exposed uh, activity. You do things and then you make sense of them. So the, the capability to search for meaning is, is something that you don't do in a sequence. You don't say, okay, what, what's meaningful in my life? And therefore I do set up a plan and I go there. But you leave, and as you leave, you make sense of things, uh, and therefore the next action is a little more in that direction. But then as you do it, learn something new, then you make sense of it. And so the activity of finding meaning is constant activity you have in your life, and you mm -hmm. cannot define it before. You, as Steve Jobs said in his, in his famous 
speech, sometimes you actually finding meanings connecting the dot, exposed. Yeah. And then you use this to drive the action, the next action, and, and then you adjust. So we are all experimenting along the journey. And as Milan Kundera said, you know, you live, there, there's no second life. There's one life and you live it life. Uh, and you make sense as you live, which is a very complicated activity. But then this idea about the importance of having a purpose, at least, you know, a bigger one, and then somehow try to, you know, stick to the direction of that purpose. Mm -hmm. Is that even meaningful or should it be more in an experimental mode? We can talk about people and about organizations. Uh, the fact that people has, has, has needs to find meaning in life, this is essential. Uh, we know it, we in the philosophy know it, and, and, and meaning and purpose is more or less the same kind of thing is, uh, is actually is, is a better definition of what is meaningful is to have a purpose in life. When we move at the level of organization and corporations, which is the reason why we are here and at the end of the day, uh, we start to realize that even organizations need to have a purpose. What happened a few months ago when 150 CEOs signed a new paper saying, you know, that corporation don't exist because they need to create profit, they exist because they have a purpose. That, that was an important step. As always, when this thing happens, after a while the world becomes meaningless or it becomes empty, no company nowadays will say they don't, they don't have a purpose. And if we look at some of the statements that we find when we see organizations thinking about purpose, they more or less look more or less the same. We want to save the world, we want to be sustainable, we want to have an impact. And, it is so high up there that the risk is not becoming actionable. Uh, and a great purpose instead is something that drives you in the everyday action. And, and so when we think about that kind of purpose, I'm, I'm a little concerned. That is starting to become a label that we need to say because it's, it's politically correct, but it's not driven driving action. When we talk about purpose, we really talk about something very, very, very specific and, and the things you do in terms of product, in terms of service you give to your customer. And it's something unique of your company. It's not something that, that, that other people do. It's what makes you different because you give something meaningful to people. I'm thinking that you know, all companies are today pretty good at trying to figure out how they could improve a service or product so it becomes 2.8, 2.9, version 3.0, etc. All these incremental changes and there's loads of data and so on about people and their needs and so on. So all everybody's using that. But what they are not using and cannot, I mean, the ones that are distinctly successful are probably those that create a more of a, a more of a deep meaning behind these these products and services as you are working on, right? The innovation of meaning and so on. So that they kind of change the place of, of, of opening a completely different um, market areas, not just because they want to earn more money because also they have more meaningful solutions for the products and services they have, right? Uh, how many companies do you think manage to really do that or are on their way to do that? I mean, some of your clients, obviously. Uh, they're, they're increasing because we, we, we were approached by an increasing number of executives who wants to follow this path. Uh, what is interesting is that uh, usually... It's not an organization, it's the person within the organization. So within the same organization, you can find people who extremely inspired by the search for a better, meaningful solution there in their organization. And instead, in the same organization, find people that think totally different, they still focus on totally on profit. 
the thing that, that however, I want to go back to what we were dis- discussing before, because saying that an organization have a better purpose and the purpose is, I don't know, to save the planet or whatever, it, it's so generic that it doesn't make you different than what the others do. Mm-hmm. When I mean purpose, I mean, take, 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 for example, sustainability. Which company wouldn't say nowadays that they want to be sustainable, sure. of course? Mm-hmm. But imagine you're a company in fashion. You've been working, and we're still working a lot in this moment. We, Prada, for example, in this moment, we're working. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, every company in the fashion industry say they want to be sustainable, but, but it doesn't mean to be sustainable in your case. Example. It doesn't mean that you want to use materials that are more sustainable. You don't want to use uh, fur or whatever. You want to to treat your jeans uh, fabric in a way that is more sustainable. Or do you mean, for example, that we don't sell clothes anymore, we rent them? These are two different things, completely different. One is, you know, using materials that are more sustainable. The other one is believing that it is more meaningful for people nowadays instead of buying fashion and then throw it away rent it sure. and then you give it back to so, I me mean, then you're getting closer to the real value that you give to people because thinking about mm-hmm. sustainability in general hopefully that would be obvious but what is the real value that you give to people in that perspective that's mm-hmm. that's a detail it's not not a generic statement there is a key challenge for innovators is not to like generate yet another idea mm-hmm. as you say it is about making sense of this like abundance of opportunities that is out there um, how do you go about that it's one of the most difficult thing ever, but what we discovered there are two mindsets. One is what we call the inside out perspective. So no one can ever tell you what is meaningful. It's, it's only you that, it's a way to connect yourself with the outside world. I believe that people will love this. And if you do it authentically, starting from you, that's a good, good start because innovation is a very difficult journey. And by definition, if you're innovating, by definition, you will face some challenge sooner or later. If the journey of your, you're in doesn't come from you, if you don't really believe in it, at the first problem, you stop. I mean, if, if someone else tells you, let's go there, that's meaningful, uh, and then you have a problem along the journey, say, yeah, but that guy was wrong. If it comes from you and you believe in it and mm. there will be a problem, then you don't stop because, okay, there is a problem, I solved it. You need to have an internal drive for that. So that's the first mindset. Uh, something that is meaningful, it needs to come from you, from your interpretation of how the world is changing, what it, how the meaning of fashion is changing. Does it really make sense now they own a lot of things or not? And the second mindset, however, is the, exactly the opposite. Given that it comes from you, you need to be ready to be critical to yourself. Okay, I used to think like this. I used to think that this was meaningful, but... Along the journey, I've been meeting this and this, and, and then I, now I reframe. As I was saying before, you make sense mm. according to what you learn, then you reframe it. And then you need to always be ready to be critical and curious. What I call curious criticism is really, really important to see what people love, because you're always ready to get the signals that there's something new happen. When you work with clients like, like this, and you, and you tell them the importance of that it has to come from within, then we're assuming it's from a person or somebody in the organization, okay? So for from a company perspective, do they think immediately that that's kind of risky? Unfortunately, yes. But that's really the inside out or outside in. So mm. when you don't have anything inside to say, of course you're waiting for some information, data from the outside that tells you you need to go left instead of right. Uh, 
So when people start to search for number, for proofs that come from the outside, from market analysis, it really means they don't really know where to go. So they hope that the outside world will save them. But sooner or later, you will, you will crash into what anyway. It's not enough at all. So, so I have an interesting story of a project that we are starting right now. I cannot say the company, of course, but I make an analogy with another company. Let's make, mm-hmm. we have a company doing course crew, okay? I always use the example of Alessi because in, uh, you probably know the Alessi companies sure. and they are totally reinvented Corsica. But it's a very nice example because if you're a company doing Corsica, how can you innovate a Corsica? I mean, that's the Corsica and people don't buy Corsica anymore because they already yeah. have one. So the company I met in these days is very similar. Uh, they have a product line. This product line is becoming obsolete because the world is changing. And, and their problem is how do we renovate our product line uh, so that we can you know, continue selling this kind of product. And I was thinking, hold on a second. We are totally starting with a totally right, wrong foot here. The problem is not, it's not that we want to keep selling a course queue. If we really discover that it's not meaningful nowadays to have course queue, why should we keep selling them? I and mean, we need to turn the reflection the other way around. Is it really meaningful for people to have course queue nowadays or not? I take an example that's even more dramatic, the car industry. Of course, every company in the car industry is thinking in this precise moment, what is the next car? because they want to keep selling cars. But is that really the problem or should we turn the problem upside down? Do people really need cars? I mean, is that meaningful in 2020 to have something that stays there 99% of their time? So uh, we, we always put problems of innovation from the perspective of a business. How do we innovate our product? Instead of putting things from the perspective of people out there, what do they mean? If they don't need what we do, it's our problem, it's not their problem. I mean, we don't need to push things there. And so if we start looking at things from the perspective of people, we, we come back to the origins of why whenever an organization has been created, you always start thinking people will love this. Then you forget about that. But at the beginning, it's like that. And, and you need to go back there. What people really they didn't search for in this moment. And unfortunately, in the organization, we always, we say that we are focused on people, but we are not. Yeah, we need to sell more. In need one to sell way more. How other. can we keep selling this? Maybe maybe it's wrong. Maybe we really need to say it's dead. Let's accept it's dead. Maybe there is a space. You don't see the space next to you where there is a huge opportunity that people will love, but you're so there trying to sell more what to do that, that you lose that opportunity. You are advisor to companies such as Ferrari and Ducati and um, Samsung, Zappos, Microsoft. I mean, you work with so, so many. What is it that you've learned from them? We've been learning, I would say, everything in the sense that uh, the way we have been doing research is what technically is called action research. So instead of making experiments in, in a laboratory, we, we work with organization, we try things, mm-hmm. and then we learn, and the next time we do it we add something new again and then we, we learn and, and and still nowadays after 15 years we've been starting to do this kind of project we still enjoy today to do always something new because we, we are researchers by definition so even when we consult companies we we, we always said why don't we try this that you know we never did it before and we tell this to the companies we always told this uh, since the beginning uh, even the first project we did was with Barilla I told them that we never did that I, one thing that I discover in general, first of all, is that they love this. Uh, leaders love to 
be engaged in a journey of discovery of new knowledge. When you say, you know, we never did this. And instead of saying, oh my God, you never did this. No, 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 no. We only want to use the process you always use. Say, okay, if you explain why you try to do it and, and they want to understand, and then they're even more excited. And that's a surprise. Uh, I thought they were, in the end way, I thought they were, they were more scared. Instead, they, are, they were not so scared. If you explain them, mm -hmm. they're more scared. What is very funny is that they're more scared when you try to be perfect. Because they know, they know you're not perfect. No one is perfect. So the more you pretend to be perfect, the more they get nervous. Mm. And then the moment you say, you know what? Yeah, we never did this. Ah, really? Ah, let's try. It's, it's fantastic. It's yeah. really... But it's also fun because, I mean, really, if, if you would define true leadership, it is to go places where nobody has been. So yeah, it that, makes that's sense. It, that's it. There was a fantastic story I was with a close friend. He works in a consulting company and we were there together in an organization. There was this client who was, he wanted everything to be perfect. And my friend was always into this what I would say, a transactional mode. So it's, you know, okay, no worries, we will do this, this is scheduled. Yes, what happened at minus 9.52 of this worship? And, and I was getting totally mad. And so, you know, and then I did this, you know, you know, I don't know, I don't know where, where, where what's happening in minute 9.5. I don't know, how can I know? I mean, if it, and then we really unlocked the system. So my friend would say, you know, I'm very envious because given you're a professor, you can play this role that, we never did that before because you're assumed. But that's my advice I would give to everyone out there. I mean, the more you try to be perfect, the more you put others into the mood of pretending perfection. Mm -hmm. and, and if the more, and there's no end. You, there is, it's simply scaling up, getting lost into details that you really don't need. So uh, we will get back to it because I think that this is one of the things that we learned more in the last few years, the power of not knowing. How do you... Um create um, innovations that, that customers do not expect, but that they eventually end up loving. Mm. If you maybe you have an, you know, an example of something that... We have, we have uh, a bunch of examples. Uh, the, 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 of course, the projects I love more are the last one we have been doing. Unfortunately, the last one we have been doing are those who are still in under development, so we cannot uh -huh. talk about that. Mm. One of the projects I, I love most uh, is, is when we designed together with Alpha the, the 4C, which was the, the first time after the long, long period which Alpha came back to the market with a sport car. And we wanted to change the meaning of what a sport car is. And traditionally, when you think about a sport car, you, you see a sport car, you, 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 you think, first of all, it's expensive. And second, thing you think about is midlife crisis guy is lost and you know finally has the money by there to show his powerful not like the classic sport car as a big engine you know mm -hmm. and then we changed that and and first of all the 4c of alpha uh, was uh, not expensive it's a sport car but it was forty thousand euros something like that so like a good car but uh, affordable for those who are passionate uh, that was quite a break of the rules of the game because uh, you don't buy that because it's exclusive, which is exclusivity. You buy that car because you love that car. And that comes to the second point. The second thing we changed is that instead of having a powerful car, the engine was very small, so not good for midlife crisis. Uh, but the car was so light 
900 kilograms because it's all camber fiber that if the, the ratio between weight and power was more or less like a Ferrari because the car was super light. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to have a powerful engine if you're light. Mm -hmm. And the car was very flexible, even dangerous in a way. So the reason why you buy that, it was exclusive because only a few people could understand the classic alpha passionate. So it was exclusivity not based on, on, on money, but exclusivity based on understanding the passion of driving. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not about power, it was about flexibility. So yeah. The market didn't ask for that, uh, but when we came down in the market, they had two years of uh, booking, mm -hmm. first time after a long, long time, which Alpha didn't have that, because it was a totally different things that were not competing with the other classic German cars, who, let, let's see who is more expensive, who is more powerful. Mm -hmm. They would never win in that case. Mm -hmm. Instead, then, then you discover that people, don't, not, not everyone loved that kind of Mini. Mm -hmm. Come to think about Brembo, also the brakes uh, like company is the same, yeah. probably yeah. a similar. Uh, Brembo is, is amazing because they have managed to change the meaning of brakes in, in in a way that is typically something hidden. Uh, you don't even care what kind of uh, brakes your car has, and then they by making it visible, they are the kind of Intel inside policy. You know, you search for the Brembo brakes because it does mean of being you know connected to sport cars that are quite powerful and, and therefore, you know, it's, it's part of, uh, of the experience of driving. So instead of being safe in that case, it's actually in, in the Brembo brakes enable you to be a little more crazy mm -hmm. because then you can brake. I wouldn't put the Brembo brakes on the Volvo. Mm -hmm. Sorry for this. Which, uh, <laughs> the meaning there is definitely safety. Brembo is not about safety. It's about be crazy. We are here. Express your driving skills, yeah. right? Express your driving skills, perfect. <laughs> there is a, like, a quote uh, I like because I've, I feel that it's very true, whether it is for people or for, for companies, and that is fear will push you until your vision pulls you. What do you think is the, the, the typical fear that sometimes can paralyze people and, and companies right now? Uh, and is that the reason why we see very few really radically new uh, visions that inspire a lot of people. One of the most inspiring books I've been reading recently is titled The Fearless Organization. It's by Yemi Edmondson, he's a professor at Harvard Business School. Very inspiring. It's, uh, it's been inspiring not only for my theory, but also for my own team. And the first point is that fear, sometimes fear of course is useful, it prevents you to do mistakes. But uh, fear also prevents to learn. Uh, it's been proven uh, repetitively that when you enter into fears, uh, you have kind of a Pavlovian reaction. I mean, you, 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 you see things and you, of course, because you're, you're wired in your brain like this, when you have fears, you don't, that's not time to learn. It's time to react as fast as possible. So your brain activates parts of the brain that, that when you're in fear, you're good in acting, but very bad in learning because that's not the time to learn. Uh, so when you have an organization in fear, it's an organization that is not learning. And without learning, there's no change, there's no innovation. Mm -hmm. The thing that I learned, which is quite interesting from that book, is that I believe I'm a person who quite open people around me is not in fear and yet in my team I had this feeling sometime you know that that we have meetings and then I say okay guys this is the idea uh, what do you think and no one speaks up 
And, and I was wondering why, because the climate is not a climate of fear that we create in our team. And then by reading the book, I discovered that fear, I mean, of course, the classic image of the leader was this the harsh, aggressive, of course, that's, mm. that creates fear. But there is a very subtle way to create fear, which is when you appear knowing too much. If you know a lot, and she tells the Emmy, she tells this very simple example. There is a, mm. she has been studying hospitals and and there is a doctor, and they are discussing a case. And this doctor, which is a very, very famous doctor, decide that for this case, he, w- he will not do, he will do a procedure which not include a step, which is a typical step you should do. So there is a nurse, and the nurse thinks, why is he not doing that step, which usually is required for the procedure? But she doesn't speak up. And it's not that she doesn't pick up because the doctor is harsh, but because she simply thinks, okay, this doctor is so smart so intelligent and I'm here in the team and if I say something like this the doctor for sure will tell me of course in this case we don't do it because and this and this and this and it will explain it will make her feel small she does she doesn't speak up so sometimes we create fear not simply because we are harsh but because sometimes we radiate too much self-confidence that we know okay and the leaders are supposed to be self-confident the more self-confident, the more they, the more they know, the better it is, isn't it? You know, the more they know what to do. So, but in reality, the more you know, the more you kill all the other around you in terms of fears. Because not because they they are they are afraid of you. Not because they simply fear that whatever they say is stupid. And that's the moment in which you kill the creativity in an organization. So what I learned this is the most important learning I was anticipating before in the last two years that. And this is the advice I give to every leader. Every leader is start from a very important sentence. And the sentence is, I don't know. I don't know. Which is mm-hmm. the thread in all this conversation we have. This is a moment in an in, in organization where leaders, instead of being proving that they know, they need to show the others that they don't know. Honestly, who knows in this crazy world what's happening? I don't know. But I'm curious to know. I don't know, but I'm curious to know. And now we discover it together. Mm. And in, mom- in the moment in which you say, I don't know, the same example I was telling about the client before, then people enter in a totally different mood because that client, they wanted everything to be perfect because he was scared. Because things are not perfect, my boss will tell me that this event was not perfect. But in the moment we see, you switch, you say, you know, I don't know. You can blame me. I don't know. It's my, it's things go wrong, it's my, it's my fault. In that moment, people opens up and say, okay, you know, honestly, I don't even know myself, but let's discover together. But this is so fundamentally rooted into leadership, leadership education, because we judge students according to what they know, not about their curiosity, but what they know when they come and do an exam. Mm. If during the exam you ask a question and they don't know, but they are curious to learn, it's too late, sorry. So we really have an entire generation of leaders who are being wired to say, I know. Yeah, and also when you go to different um, events and conferences and, and so on, if you would say to somebody, listen, we don't know exactly what the agenda of this event, for example, will be. We'll make sure that we have a fantastic group of diverse, beautiful people here. And uh, we have some you know, basic framework, but otherwise, 
it's going to be the dynamic of the room and of the people that will decide because we don't know what is the most interesting subject for this group of people. We will figure it out, for example. Yeah, yeah. People will... Do you think they will come to the event? Or Because I think that, that people need some kind of, of course, framework in general. But there is so much to be created if you go to, um, to a don't-know space. Yeah, I uh, can tell you a fantastic story. This year I've been starting my new position at uh, Stockholm School of Economics and uh, I teach leadership and innovation there. And I've been teaching leadership and innovation since, I don't know, how many years now. And and then given point, I came here and said, you know what, I was a little tired, you know. And, and when you feel that you've already been squeezing everything out of your mind, you don't know any, anymore what to, what to invent. So I came to the class and I said to the student, I don't know anymore what, what else I can teach. Why don't you design the course? So what we did, I always give my student a project to do, but in this case, the project was to design the course. Not for this year, because it was too late, but for the student of next year. So the entire course has been designed in the course. And that was the best course I did in my life. The student was fantastic, super engaged, of course, because then you get into the, into the activity. You, you are into the process. You don't just listen, you, you, you create. There is an amazing power in this moment to say, I don't know, but I'm curious to know. So if you simply say, I don't know, you step back and you don't engage. But if you say, I don't know, but let's sit together and try to understand. Mm-hmm. And what, can I ask, out of curiosity, what modules of, of stuff came into the course from the students? That's a very, very good question. Uh, one thing that surprised me, and it's something to reflect about, we always picture the world of innovation, leadership, like very energetic, fast, a uh, lot of ideas, uh, workshop, things happen. Uh, and instead, the students suggested that uh, we, I should introduce, introduce in the course some moment of, let's say, in a way we could call it mindfulness, or I can call it reflection. Mm-hmm. So to give space to slow thinking. So we assume that people crave for high energy way of being, especially in creativity, you know, workshop ideas. And mm-hmm. Instead, the student came back with it. Of course, they still want some moment of high energy, but they say, mm-hmm. we want to have time to slow down. And these are very, very clever students. Slow down means not because they are lazy, but because they want to have time to reflect. Like digest, yeah. Uh, so they suggested mm-hmm. events outside of the school. We can go there. We can go to the archipelago and, and, and have opportunity in which students take a walk and, and do their things and reflect, come back. They also talked a lot about fears, how mm-hmm. to, to deal with the fears of things. So mm-hmm. uh, it was an enlightening experience because in a way I had this intuition already inside. But when, you, mm-hmm. when it comes from then, then you say, okay, then I'm not totally crazy. We, I can really be, because sometimes you make assumptions about what people mm-hmm. love and, and because in the past it's been like this. Mm-hmm. And until you don't give them space to really express themselves, they say, no, but maybe we we, be, we tell you this, but in reality, if we really think about it, we don't, we don't like that so much. We mm. want to have another approach. So that was the biggest learning, mm. that students love reflective moments. Interesting. What do you think um, used to be the heroes in the business world, like during the 90s and, and later on, and who are they 
today? Traditionally, the hero is classic, you know, someone with superpowers and ready to smarter, ready to sacrifice himself, uh, who has good narratives, who speaks up, uh, who leads and set directions. Uh, kind of masculine uh, figure, if you think about that, you know, it's classic. Someone with all these heroes is, is by definition is not perfect, but uh, in, in the true moment is there. So someone who sacrificed for the others. But this, the idea of the hero sacrifice for the others is always someone strong with a good narrative, setting direction. I think the feeling we all share in this moment that there are very few heroes in this moment around. The problem is that we need to redefine what is a hero. Because maybe there are many more. There are very few heroes like that kind of hero. Uh, there are many, honestly, many small men and women uh, who are leading our society and our organization sometimes with a very narrow perspective. But there are silent, the very heroes, the real heroes in this moment, are, they, are, they are silent. Uh, silent means that they, they don't know, they listen. But then, and this is the next step after you listen and you don't know, they take responsibilities. And in this crazy world, one of the easiest things to do is avoiding responsibilities because it's so complicated. You're never responsible for anything. You know, when things are complicated, even if things turn wrong, there is always a reason why they turn wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's a very interesting moment in which everyone wants to have a say, everyone wants to participate, but no one wants to take responsibility. Okay, now I listen to you, I listen to you, and as a leader, okay, I believe. Now that I've been listening, now I believe we can go there. And there you, you are really a hero because people in a world that is very scary, no one wants to take responsibility nowadays. So that's the real, those who, after you listen, you take your responsibility and, uh, and humbly you do it. There are not many people like this. But is there anybody at least in your uh, world that, that you would describe as, as an example of a hero? The, the most interesting Unbelievable, the person come to my mind in this moment, a person who is just a good mother, which looks like a very easy thing to be, but uh, she's a hero. She's a hero. She's a very, very good mother and, and being true to herself and putting her children first. And, and uh, everyone, every parent will say that, but then when it comes to real action, it's much more, more difficult. So the reason why I quote this is because we need to come back to the capability to understand that to be a hero, you don't need to save the world. If you save two or three people, that's more than enough. If every one of us save three people, we have been saving 21 billion people in the world, which is more than we need. Mm. I'm always scared of this tendency of saying heroes are those who save, let's save the world by many people that don't even save themselves. But uh, let's focus on the two, three people next to us. It's more than enough, more than enough. You need to do crazy stuff if you're generally doing this then and it's everyone would generally doing that it's probably the the, the need for some kind of acknowledgement or anything like that that comes yeah. from more of an of a yeah ego. that's that's the reason why i'm i'm, I'm scared because in our society storytelling speaking up uh, that's that's very easy to do that that's not difficult uh, mm -hmm. those who are silent and do things even in small chunks 
And this is all the, the thread or another thread we have in our conversation. We start from purpose, you know, getting down to small things and but doing this authentically. If you can tell when you're when you're 85, I've been helping six people finding their way through. That's fantastic. And um, in in order for us to really applaud, um, you could say the the all the people that are heroes, you could say in in a framework of, framework of a company, and for them to get the right not just acknowledgement but just get the right motivation and inspiration and so on and keep going. We could also add other kinds of measurement systems than the KPIs we are typically looking for right now, typically the financial ones and so on. Yeah. And we could, with an innovative approach in mind, develop KPIs that are reflecting how companies contributing to human growth or societal growth or, right? Yeah. Is any of that happening? I mean, discussed maybe, but is it happening somewhere or do you believe in this? This, yeah, yeah, I believe it's, uh, it's discussed. I think this is one of the frontier of research. And um, this is uh, something, not this specific topic, but in general, there is a topic in this moment that traditional leadership models don't work anymore. They focus on profit and financial KPIs and you know vertical narratives. There is a kind of model of leadership that doesn't work. Everyone knows that we want to go in a, in a new direction but we still don't have it. Uh, for example, we don't have the new KPIs. We don't have new educational models to educate the leaders. How can you educate leaders who are good in listening instead of talking? If we keep asking students to talk when they do the exam. So in this moment, there is a, I think there is a shared idea that leadership needs to change. We miss the tools. There is a fantastic book by Thomas Kuhn Thomas Kuhn was a sociologist of science and, and he's the person who invented the concept of paradigm and he makes the example you know, from, you know, from Ptolemaic uh, to Copernicus system, you know, understanding that the sun is... Mm. And when, when people started to think that uh, maybe it's not the sun running around the earth, but it's the earth running around the sun, in reality, many people were a little skeptical that the sun was running around the earth. But until you don't have a an alternative explanation, you still stuck there. And here we are in this situation now on leadership and organization. We, we, there is a malaise, and I think the malaise is quite spread around. But until you don't provide people another tool, something, things don't happen. So we, we share malaise, and the example of KPI is the same. We, 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 we know, many organizations know that they will do, love to do something different. And they know they will need to have new KPIs, but until we don't find them, they keep using those they have. Uh, and that's the, that's the, the frontier in this moment. If you would assume that you have all doors open to you and you have really all resources available to you, what would you immediately innovate or change? Well, this is uh, a little part of the story why I'm here in, in Stockholm in this moment and the idea behind the garden. Uh, we don't have all the resources of the world, but... What we are trying to do is to go into this path of reinventing leadership by providing tools for doing this. It can be educational tools, it can be the framework, model, understanding. Uh, that in this moment is what intrigues him most. I think there is a leadership um, epidemic in this moment because we, everyone agrees that 
it needs to change and but we need to find a way to get out of this and so the fourth of the garden what we are trying to do in the garden which is like the new center we are creating at stockholm school of economics is starting from the assumption that we don't know <laughs> engaging other leaders hopefully those who are a little more enlightening or they have some ideas and we are quite open to find out together the way out and is there any particular advice to leaders to you that you want to highlight I think the one that we said before, the, the, the idea that mm. although everything you've been seeing in your life points to a leader who is very vertical, sure, confident, the best way to be a leader in this moment is to say, I don't know, but I'm curious to know. Then you're really the best leader. Is there any advice you would give to yourself, maybe, I don't know, 15 or so years ago? Is there anything that comes to mind? Don't get lost, <laughs> which is the problem of everyone in front of... I was, I was reflecting these days, and, and, and uh, because it's a moment of building the garden, and, mm -hmm. and I'm exactly in the same challenge that everyone has, and I talk about in my book. There are so many things that we could do, mm -hmm. but it's easy to get lost. So, so be focused and uh, try to do as least thing as possible. Less Which is, is more. Mm. Less is more. In this moment, less is more. Uh, it's a, but it's a dangerous thing because uh, mm. I'm appearing in my life in which the, the, the mind works too much. It should work less. Too many ideas. And, and the, what is your list of less right now, at least, uh, apart from there is the garden, you also work in Milan, Politecnico, you, you write loads of you know, articles and stuff for Harvard, business school and review and so on what else i mean then you have the european uh, yeah which is a big responsibility as well so is, is that on your on your focus list or is it something else or is it more like say what that, you focus on within that i would say in this moment the garden is really mm -hmm. the the focus mm -hmm. then i don't know you measure focus if you measure in terms of time pleasure of thinking uh, passion but that's definitely mm -hmm. the focus in this moment kind of forget the responsibility I have with my team in Milan and other things. So, but uh, mm. is where the tension is in this moment. Great. Do you want to finish off with this big, uh, huge question about what do you think the world needs most at this time? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was very funny because you say, if you had all the resources, there was this question, the resource I was thinking before, you know, maybe see, if I really had the magic wand, if I really, really had a magic wand, I would like to see what would happen if we would get rid of all our smartphones. That would be fantastic. Because I've been growing up in a world without smartphones, and I remember that life was not so bad at that time. It's not so bad even now, but it's mm. not... So, I don't know, mm, that could be something fantastic to make an experiment in which really for... Sorry, we have been joking for 20 years. Now, no smartphones anymore. That would be fun. But... Um, Instead, if I can uh, add something to the to the world, uh, it would be nice to find a lot of these small heroes. If we say one fantastic hero makes the life of three people more meaningful, then we need about two billion heroes. So if anything happens, you know, we don't need everyone, but two billion heroes. Okay, that's it. That kind of heroes. Good point. Thank you so, so much, Roberto. Uh, thanks for sharing everything. And um, for people to find out more about um, uh, what you're doing, uh, where should they head? There is a website, which, by the way, I just updated during the Christmas vacation. So 
there you can find the articles, what I do, and some videos and other stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll post those links, uh, of course. And also, of course, check out um, his book, Overcrowded, Designing Meaningful Products in a World Awash with Ideas. And uh, you'll find all links, show notes on corporateunplugged.com. And just before finishing, I just wanted to curiously I just ask you, uh, how was it to be on the podcast this time around? Oh, fantastic. Uh, cozy. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's difficult because it's difficult to, after two years, you believe it's a long time, but for a scholar, two years is a very, very short time. If you're, if you're serious, but I felt good. I, I hope I would didn't, I was not too repetitive to what I said before. Not at all. Not at all. Thank you so much. And, um, Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast, and uh, share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing Roberto. Please rate and uh, review this podcast if you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, live with purpose, and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao.